Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's teaching text comes from Galatians 5, 13 through 15, and 22 through 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Would you please welcome my friend, Dr. John Enzer. Good morning. So nice to be back. Thank you for welcoming me back. There's so many things I love about this community. Um, as my wife and family and I frequent it, and as we travel down from Bartlesville from time to time, uh, the thing that I just most admire today is the, the thing, level the of self-confidence in the room so may, and the comfort level that you have. Um, I just told John there is no way I can get up here and show you my calves. I, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> Um, and yet, so many of you are just very comfortable and confident. What a, what a, <laughs> I mean, that's a compliment. You're, you're confident and you feel um, like you belong. As we move into these nine virtues, these nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, I thought I would share just a little bit of a cheat code, uh, cliff notes, from some of the things that I've learned and unlearned as I have looked at these nine aspects. In the spirit of uh, a great movie that I used to watch when I was a kid, Mrs. Doubtfire, I'm going to call this rapid fire a drive-by fruiting. It's really important when we look at the fruit of the Spirit that we realize Paul uses language fruit rather than fruits. It is singular rather than plural. And I can hear those English uh, majors out there saying, yeah, that's a collective noun, and you're right. But Paul very easily could have said fruits of the Spirit. He didn't. The idea seems to be that this is a bundle. This is a packaged deal. This is a bit like when you move into a small town and you call your cable provider and all you want is high-speed internet, but no, you can't have that. You have to have this and that and the other. I didn't think about that with the fans. That's good. It'll be fun. It'll be a game we can all watch. Um, no, you have to have all that. And this seems to be the very idea of the fruit of the Spirit. It, it is not as if we can come and say, yeah, I want some joy, but I'm not very interested in gentleness. Or I'm really interested in peace, 
But that self-control bit, that's kind of infringing on what I want to do. That's not how it works. It is all or nothing. And this is the very evidence of God working in the people of God to change them into his unique people. And I think what also has been very important for me is that this should be in contrast to Paul's other language that he used, which is called the gifts of the Spirit, where Paul is very clear to use the plural gifts. Some of these gifts will be things like teaching. I hope I got that one because I'm a bit of a one-trick pony. Others will be preaching. It'll go by the term prophecy. And the idea here is that everybody doesn't get all of them, but the Spirit empowers the church in ways that all of us get one, that helps us to be the people of God for the world. This is an important sort of distinction that's not supposed to be just a mere academic one because when wires get crossed... And when the gifts of the Spirit are mistaken for the fruit of the Spirit, things get weird and people get hurt. So for instance, some of the gifts of the Spirit are things that are quite unusual, things that are quite surprising, like gifts of healing or something called the gift of speaking in tongues. And if you confuse these and you actually think that the gifts of the Spirit are the very evidence of God living in the community, then all of a sudden, people can become quite disillusioned. Think if uh, a lot of us may have had an experience where we've been told, unless you speak in tongues, then maybe in fact you're not really a true believer if you don't have that. Or if in fact we've been in a situation where somebody has been ill and we've prayed for their healing, some of us have gotten messages that say, look, look, if you really, really believe, then it will happen. And if it doesn't happen, then we get some sort of messages, well, maybe you're a second-rate believer, or maybe you don't have enough faith, or maybe there's like a hidden sin. All of this is a mistake. It is crossing the wires between the gifts of the Spirit, which God gives generously, but we don't have all of them and the fruit of the Spirit that is all supposed to be manifested over time in the people of God. Second, the fruit of the Spirit is intensely communal and social rather than individual and private. Um, those of us that are modern Americans, we've been born into a world where we have psychological interiors. We have this internal space that we focus on and understand and think about. And let me just say that I think this is an incredibly important part of the human. I try to be very open about this with my own students and just simply say, even sometimes with the stigma about mental health that can exist, that there have been moments in my life where I have had to reach out and I've had to get help and all of these types of things, and this is incredibly appropriate. But this is not what the fruit and the Spirit is, in fact, talking about. If we look at the opposite of those things, the fruit of the Spirit, we actually see what Paul calls the works of the flesh. And the works of the flesh are all things that you would have to do with other people. You can read about those and see. Even the things that we talked about last week where Paul calls the idea, refers to this idea of sorcery. The literal word is magic drugs. Here, magic drugs is not people taking magic drugs in private. It's the ancient practice of cursing others. And so one of the most common things in the ancient world is that if you wanted to steal someone's boyfriend or girlfriend, or if you wanted to get a business contract, you would engage in magic drugs. Everything in the works of the Spirit is about relationships and other people and the ways in which they can disintegrate. And the works of uh, the fruit of the Spirit is intensely communal. We're in Galatians 5 and 6, and in Galatians 5 and 6, Paul uses the term one another seven times. Because the fruit of the Spirit 
is God's messianic intervention between me and you and you and others that allows us to lead an alternative type of life in a different type of community where we have healthy, future-oriented, sturdy, spirit-filled relationships that allow us to, in fact, act different. The third thing that I've learned uh, and that I'd like to share in my little drive-by fruiting is that the fruit of the Spirit have a paradox at the core of them. All of these aspects, these nine virtues, are only given by the power of God and the giving and the gift of the Spirit that changes us. And yet they will be nothing more than a nice idea or something that we can fake for a couple hours a week unless we do something about it. Unless, in fact, we commit to cultivating and staying in step with the Spirit in ways that actually allow these things to become more than just simply a nice idea, but become real things that happen in our communities. We talked about last week, this creates a little bit of a conundrum for us. How do we think about this idea of us taking responsibility for something that, in fact, only God can do? And it seems to be to me this, that in the love of God and the love of Christ, what ends up happening is that the human and the community is not diminished as an agent, but we are in fact enabled as agents to take responsibility for the types of communities that we're building, the types of people that we are becoming. And so when I think about the fruit of the Spirit, I'm always sort of thinking in these sorts of ways. What are the habits? What are the practices? What are the rhythms? What are the values? What are the rituals that we can create that will help us to be more in step with the Spirit so that these things go from being a nice idea to something that we're richly enjoying the life that God has for us, while at the same time not becoming discouraged and dismayed at the days and weeks and even seasons of life where we don't see the evidence of those things quite yet? How can this happen? Well, that concludes the drive-by fruiting, and now we move to this first aspect, the idea of love. And I think when it comes to the idea of love, you guys know kind of the state of play just as well as I do. Paul lists love first because this is the gateway. This is the, the, uh, not the duty of a Christian, but it's ultimately the destiny of the church. It is the very uh, initial way by which this radically different type of community and different types of relationships can be formed. But just in as much as we say that, we automatically hit obstacles. Because in our culture, love is still like a social good. It's something, if we sort of just survey the landscape, that we all generally agree is valuable. And yet its value as a social good is not matched by the precision of definition. Like, what exactly are we talking about when our society invokes and talks about love, right? There's a sociologist named Christopher, or Christian Smith at University of Notre Dame. And in the early 2000s, he did a, a significant amount of research uh, with, with some other um, scholars to sort of investigate the spiritual lives of teenagers. Those teenagers are now adults, basically some of the ages that we have here. And what he came to see is that there was a transformation that was actually happening in the United States. He actually, um, through, through big words that I'm not interested in uh, necessarily sharing, he investigated sort of the emerging de facto religion of American teens and their adults. And when he took all of the sort of the moral research, when he investigated uh, what people thought was like a moral good, teenagers thought was a moral good, he boiled it all down and the most common, the common response was this. 
be kind, and then I'll clean it up and make it appropriately Anglican. Don't be a donkey. This was the, the basic definition of the highest moral order out there, to be kind and to not be a jerk. And so when we're talking about love, it's really difficult for all of us to even agree what exactly it is that we're talking about with this very old, tired, and heavily freighted sort of term. So what are we talking about? Is it just simply to be kind? Is it to have good manners in public? Or if we're talking about a post-Christian society that we're realizing that we live in, does this mean acknowledging that post-Christian society and just simply saying, look, voices that have once been sidelined can now share their, share their position, their perspective at a table. Is that what love is, making space in a post-Christian society for other once sidelined voices? Or is it even more than that? Is it now, in fact, not just creating a space for them, but in fact acknowledging the worthiness or the accuracy or the validity of those positions, even if those positions are contrary to traditional Christian values, or even contradictory to other voices at the table. Or then we think about like our hyper-sex society. Is love just simply primarily to belong in the sexual domain? And so I think for a lot of us, especially those of us that work in a post-Christian society, and I think about a number of my students that are in um, higher education and research labs and tier one schools or something like that, this lack of clarity creates for a number of us that work in these environments a bit of paralysis. It's, it's like that meme that you see from The Simpsons where Homer Simpson is in front of a bunch of shrubbery and he slowly fades back, right? No sudden movements. We don't know what love is, but we certainly, and if those of us that work in those environments, we don't want to be thought of as unloving or as the opposite, as hateful. And so we just sort of try to make sure we don't rock the boat. I even have a number of friends that live in these environments that have to be very careful what they say or they will lose their jobs, right? To kind of represent this viewpoint, um, I have a line from a band that, yes, I did like, and no, I'm not dragging them, uh, but here is a line from Chris Martin from Coldplay. No falsettos were hurt in the singing of uh, this line. He says, reign of love by the church we're waiting. I remember back in those early 2000s, I was like, yeah. Uh, you know, I had my own experience, like, yeah, that's right. It's a very interesting sort of picture though, right? The idea here seems to be that the non-sort of believing world values this idea of love and in some ways the church hasn't lived up to it and like the picture is the, the non-Christian or the post-Christian world is waiting for the church to sort of catch up. I think maybe that could be true from time to time but more than anything when you think about this larger love language and our trouble with it in our culture, it seems to be that the taunt or the offer is often this that Christians make sure that they follow the spirit of the age rather than staying in step with the spirit of God, right? This seems to be the challenge. And many of us live in these environments and, and a lot of it has to do with the ambiguity of this word, love. In the same way, a lot of us have also witnessed the shocking reaction to all of this, right? Here, in these other corners of our society, love is a four-letter word. There is this ongoing rejection of any type of love. It's a sign of weakness. And in place, there's a celebration ongoing of aggression 
intimidation, and even violent words and conduct. All relationships here seem to be simply reduced to mere power games. And here the language seems to be that the situation is so dire in our society. We are at DEFCON 4, we are at threat level midnight, and if we don't act in an intimidating, forceful way, if we don't throw elbows, then we won't have our place in society anymore. Here, uh, as a quote, I'm going to um, offer, just as, as we had uh, Chris, uh, Chris Martin as a guest, here's a line from former VeggieTales writer, Eric Metaxas. We need to fight to the death, to the last drop of blood, because it's worth it. This wasn't a metaphor. This was serious. And people listened, and it happened. Here, the situation becomes even more complex. Again, this isn't a, uh, an issue of trying to drag Eric in any way. The point is that if Chris represents sort of the larger voice that is speaking to the church to say, get in line with the spirit of the age, in this situation, the phone call is coming from inside the house. We have these really challenging questions and issues. I don't know, I, I heard Noel sort of articulate this, it just becomes overwhelming. I know the Odoms have just got back from vacation, but sometimes when I hear all of this sort of clutter, when I think about all of our convoluted love language, I just want to take a vacation. I just can't deal with it. It just becomes overwhelming and too big. What do we do in the midst of these at least two competing voices, one sometimes in the very community of the church with a capital C and the other outside. And so that's what I'm actually going to invite us to do. It's hot in here, so maybe we need to sort of escape. And I want us to go on a journey this morning. It's not a three-hour tour that turns into a really long sitcom. Instead, it's going to be about 12 minutes. If it's too hot, and I think I'm actually sweating right now, like beads, beads of sweat. Can you see them? Hope not. You can see them. That's embarrassing. Should have shown my calves. <laughs> I want us to go just on. Oh, thanks. Thank you, friend. I want us to go and just sort of escape the madness that we experience in our world. I want to invite us to go back into the world in which Galatians was written. I want us to enter into that world in tour. We're going to walk around in our mind's eyes some cities in southern Turkey. We're going to think about what their world was like. And then we're going to imagine what it is like not to walk into a room that we expected to be cold and we have some fans, but we're going to walk in the midst of the summer into a small Jesus community in southern Turkey, the recipients of this letter, and hear how they thought about things, Paul's own communities. And then, and then our vacation is going to be over. We're going to come back. And we're going to see if there's anything that we could have learned in that journey that can help us with the complexity and the trouble that we find in our world. I hope you're okay with the journey. If we go into southern Turkey in the first century where Paul is, then we might be surprised by what we find. In the first century, love just simply wasn't something people talked about. It wasn't something people thought about or worried about. It wasn't anything that animated any community that we know of. 
Instead, the electricity in the machine of ancient life is something that we refer to as the quest for honor. It, it, that, that's sort of a technical word, but you can think of sort of the quest for status, for acknowledgement, um, and for recognition. In this world, worth depended on your public reputation, something that was energetically claimed and fiercely depended by, uh, defended by ancients, uh, whoever they might be. And the interesting thing is this very desire for recognition and status and even minor celebrity was one of the main and only reasons why ancient people even got up off their rear to do anything. Here is a guy named Cicero who lived about a hundred years before Paul, and this is what he says. By nature, we yearn and hunger for honor, and once we have glimpsed, uh, as it were, some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. This is just everywhere, everywhere. All of life, the electricity in the machine was getting recognition, getting status, and having people affirm that over and over and over and over again. This made life in this city that we're touring in our mind's eye public, performative, and competitive. First, this idea of it being public. To play this game and to get recognition and status, everything needed to be graded by the public. There was this group of people that was always evaluating you, and sociologists call this the audience of reputation. And so the quest for honor was essential. It literally built the ancient world, and the term that you would see plastered all over ancient cities that were touring in our mind's eye would be this one, philotomia, the love of honor. It was this very love of actually getting recognition that motivated people in the ancient world to do amazing things. If you've ever toured ancient ruins in the Mediterranean from the Roman Empire, those things, those buildings were actually built by this, and they advertised it. We are grateful for so-and-so because of their quest for honor and status built us this building. And so any aqueduct you might see, any park that you might see, it is all built because somebody wanted to attach their name to it and get recognition and honor. It even motivated the, the most um, gallant of heroic actions. People would fight and do whatever they could so that they could get some sort of recognition for it. There's a contemporary of Paul's named Dio Chrysostom. And this is what he says, you could not get a single man out of a multitude to do what he, de uh, what he deems a noble deed for himself if no one else shall know of it. Everybody did good deeds and built things and, you know, did heroic acts, but only so that audience of reputation could say, that guy, that girl is really, really important. Second, it made it life very performative. To receive the feedback, you had to perform. You had to be a bit of a dancing bear. The criteria for gaining this thing that everybody wanted could be a number of things. It could be, it could be gender, gender. Being male was far better than being female. It could be your ancestry. It could be your age. To be younger was much better than being older. But of course, old people said quite the opposite. And so there'd be arguments about that. Education, legal status, are you slave or are you free? Your physique, do you have nice cheekbones? Or are you able-bodied or disabled? All of these things created the scale, brave actions. 
And so if you wanted to show that you were a real man, a real woman, then you had to display your looks. You had to display your wealth. And so this resulted in endless preening, endless seeking of celebrity. This is everything that people were consumed with. And it was competitive. As I've said before, this is sort of the Ricky Bobby principle. If you ain't first, you're last. The only way to claim your space was that you had to compare yourself to someone else. You weren't just good looking, you were better looking. You weren't just rich, you were richer. And so you needed a target, you needed a foil, somebody that you can compare yourself with. Only then would the audience look at you and say, yeah, you have that thing, that status, that honor, that sort of thing. But of course, the higher you climbed on this ancient ladder of success, the larger the target grew on your back. The more you had to look over your shoulder. And so it created this amazing ancient high wire act where people were always looking over their shoulder to see who was going to pull them off the high wire, who was going to steal their contract, who was going to try to seduce their spouse, who was going to try to say something uh, behind their backs that would create this sort of uh, tension. And so it required constant paranoia, constant surveillance to make sure that you protected your place on the pecking order. This quest that we're talking about as we're going through our, our city in southern Turkey, it turned people who were dancing bears who wanted praise and affirmation, it easily turned them into predators who were looking for easy targets. And like I said, while this game that we're seeing as we can just imagine our mind's eye, building projects, young kids, trying to look for a fight so that they can prove themselves, people speaking on the corners to try to get attention with how they speak or how good they look. While this built the ancient world, it also threatened to destroy it. And so this is this vacation we're on. I want us to imagine in our mind's eye that we are on this sort of thoroughfare through this city, and down at the end of a road, we see cramped apartment complexes. We walk down that road and we turn into them, uh, turn into one of them. And in a densely packed, air-conditioned free room, so it's very easy for us to imagine, we see a group of people gathered together early on a Sunday morning. It's so cramped and smells so bad that it's probably overwhelming to us at first. So we take our position, maybe on an internal stairwell, and we just observe. And if you observed long enough, you would realize that even though this place was gross, and even though you wanted to get out of there, there was something incredibly different about this group of people. This community, as, as unappealing uh, as so many of the aspects of this room are, is what we would think of as an outlier. If we spend enough time there, we would realize that this group has purposely and intentionally rejected that game that we can hear going on out on the road. They've rejected it. They think of it as fool's gold. To think about some of the texts that we looked at last week, Paul tags this entire game and he calls it the flesh. It belongs to the deadly sphere of the flesh. Listen to the language. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but do the opposite. Serve one another humbly in love. If you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be destroyed by one another. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep with the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Do you hear what's going on? Paul is contrasting what is to go on in this room with the entire game that is going on outside. To early urban Christians, like the ones that we're seeing in our mind's eye, the opposite of love is not anything that we oftentimes think about, indifference or whatever it might be. It was the competitive quest for attention and status. The self-obsession that Paul knew would end in community collapse. It is the lust for attention, the obsession with self, the preening, the self-advertising, the envying and the hostility that comes with it. That for this group that we're looking at, they just simply say, it's over. Those who are in Christ, it's over. They've crucified their commitment. They've crucified the flesh. And so they're no longer committed to that game. In Christ, people no longer need this obsession with status and power and recognition that Paul refers to as the flesh. And so if we were to watch this group of people long enough, we would realize that the whole, all the old social capital, all those criteria that are used to measure and compare and to best one another are just entirely obsolete. If we were to look through some of their literature that they've left us, like Galatians, we realize why they've stopped playing the game. They believe that God, who is the ultimate audience of reputation, just doesn't simply care about the old social capital. He doesn't care about looks. He doesn't care about wealth. He doesn't care about race. And he doesn't care about title as defining criteria as to who, in fact, gets a gift from him. Listen to what Paul says about, uh, in Galatians, about a conflict that, in fact, he had. Sorry, I'm doing something bad with the microphone. He has a conflict earlier in Galatians 2, 6, and he's able to say this, as for those who were held in high esteem, there's that honor language. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism, right? You hear this type of language, and to come into Christ is essentially to give up that old measuring rod. This isn't because God is simply into modern conceptions of fairness and equality. I would actually say it's the other way around, but that's a uh, discussion for another day. Paul, in fact, noticed something. God's grace, the, the very word in Greek here is gift, is given without respect to any version of that ancient game that you and I have been seeing on the road outside. Literally, Paul is just making a simple observation. God did not show favoritism. It's a bit like Oprah, if you remember that show, that one show that we are all excited to see. You get the gift. You get the gift. You get the gift. Everybody gets the gift. And this meant for Paul something basic, some basic observation. God had broken the rules to that game. The very way the cosmos was supposed to work, he broke it. And in some ways, he broke the game altogether. Listen to his beautiful language about this in Galatians 6. May I never boast, there's some of that performative language. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world, that includes that game, has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that's some of that criteria, racial criteria, means anything. What counts is new creation. 
And so Paul saw something. He saw lives changing and people responding to the message and the goodness of God and the Messiah. By faith, Torah-observant Jews got the gift. By faith, deeply deviant Gentiles got the gift. Slaves got the gift. Slave owners got the gift. Men got the gift. Women got the gift. The only conclusion that could be reached is that whole game that we is outside our little cramped apartment that we're stuck in, simply obsolete. Listen to Paul now through that lens. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, not through that old criteria. For all of you were baptized into Christ Jesus, you have clothed yourself with Christ Jesus. Here, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In another book called Philippians chapter 3, Paul, in fact, will say, we don't have any reason to have confidence in the flesh. That's, in some ways, Paul making reference to that game. He says, but if anybody has reason to have confidence in the flesh, I do. And then he lists off all of his measurements right? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. He is basically saying, I was a little celebrity. I was, I was a rising star in my community. He says, but I count it all as loss. He even uses this very interesting Greek word. It's all scubula. It's all poo compared to knowing Christ, right? And so it's not just that God broke the game. Instead, he gave his people in this cramped apartment, something to live. There's an entirely different alternative system of worth that replaces this competitive system that we've seen all throughout our little vacation. In place of competitive hostility, Paul instead refers to love. It's the new creative energy. It's a quality of social commitment that binds people together. And the word that they used was agape. You can see it behind me. Here, it's quite interesting. The early church did not look through their dictionaries and say, yeah, I think I found a great word that explains exactly what I'm getting at. Instead, they seem to pick a very contested word, one word that sometimes referred to like erotic love. Other times it meant like friendship. It meant all sorts of different things, but they basically decided to take it, steal it, and repopulate it with new definition that said exactly what it was that they were wanting to say. And here, when we think about what Paul and the early Christians did, they were trying to say that love is not a feeling of goodwill towards one another, but it is the radical intervention of the Spirit that transforms relationships that were once based on power, abuse, and performance. They are now relationships of other-preferring care and love, where each person now through the gift of the Spirit or the power of the Spirit. They seek to promote not themselves, but the interest of others. Look at these radical passages now that we've been on vacation. In Romans 12, Paul says, be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Here, the competition is not the first to receive honor, but the first to give it. It's not the first to gain superiority, but to cede it. And here you don't have to look over your shoulder who's going to steal your contract or your seat. Yes, this is something that ancient people were really obsessed with. It's a bit like middle school. Or try to seduce your spouse. None of those things. 
Even at the very weakest moment, the very place when somebody had made a mistake and violated the rules of the community, done something wrong, a place where blood is in the water, look at how this community now responds. Galatians 6.1, brothers and sisters, if somebody is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. You don't walk them like a dog, which is what everyone had to do in order to claim honor. Reach out in gentleness. Work for that person's restoration. And so in our passage, Paul refers to all of this, stepping out from that world into this cramped apartment, into this radical new way of life. And what he calls it is he calls it freedom. It's freedom from the brutality and the exhaustion of that competitive game that need for attention and celebrity and acknowledgement. This is freedom that Paul will say in Greek, to be slaves to one another through love. It's not that simply God cancels the old hierarchy for the sake of equality, but even as that song that Ben led, it's that God has turned the world upside down. He has inverted that hierarchy so that the highest good now involves promoting the interests of others bearing the burden of one another, stooping low to serve. Here, if we're finally getting to the core of what agape meant, love is cross-shaped. To suffer crucifixion is to suffer the death of a slave. It is to be very clearly at the bottom of the social ladder. If that socially humiliating death is actually God giving himself to save the world, then the world is in fact an upside down place after all. And the highest good is shaped by what others think is the lowest station. Listen to how Paul even talks about this. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. In the cross, Paul says in Philippians 2, Christ did not seek his own welfare, his own advantage, but that of others. And so this becomes both the highest good for the community and the master story by which the community lives. Whatever the situation, the question is, how can I live out the drama of the cross? And if you read the New Testament, you read what some of those issues are. What if some of my friends are really, really bothered by the idea of eating meat that was once sacrificed to idols? What do you do? What do you do? What if in our community, in, ancient, in the ancient world, there are some people who have more money, nicer house, better clothes, and more food than others, and when we come together to eat the Lord's Supper, those people who have more stuff get better food, and the others go hungry? What, what do we do? What if we have Jewish believers who are really maybe very committed to certain days of the week or certain foods that are appropriate or inappropriate? What do we do? All of, this were, were, all of these were simply gray areas. And rather than Paul giving hard and fast rules about every sort of situation, there is cross-shaped love as a drama to be lived out again and again and again. For the entire law is filled with keeping the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Some rabbis believe that if all the nation of Israel could just be could just be faithful to the law for one day, then the Messiah would come. Paul says it the other way. The Messiah has come, and now believers can keep the law in the most surprising way. They can keep the law through cruciform, other-preferring love through the power of the Spirit. And for Paul, nothing else really matters. 
Here we are in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. That sounds like a passage we just read, but it's not the same one. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Love rather than self-obsession was what really builds things that lasts. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul actually says at the end of the age, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Paul actually seems to refer to this as if love is the actual building product of the world to come. And the things that we do that are soaked and motivated by, soaked in and motivated by this cruciform love are not temporary. They will last. And so we look at agape versus the love of honor. And Paul says, no, no, no. The love of honor that builds the aqueducts and the parks and the buildings, it won't last. The things that we do that are through the love of the Messiah for one another, those will last forever. I want us to see ourselves in that cramped apartment. Our time there is coming to an end. And it's hot there, isn't it? You can imagine. You can play along. Doesn't smell nice. But what's happened? How have these relationships changed? Relationships that were once characterized by fear and vulnerability, what are they now? They're characterized by safety. Suspicion has been turned into trust. Exhaustion of playing the performing game is now turned into rest. Enemies have been turned into friends and predatory relationships have been turned into deep and lasting mutual future-oriented, spirit-filled friendships. I, I think if we were there, we may not like so many of the things that we're experiencing, but those people in that room would say it was almost like they had been transported to another world. They're no longer out there, and here they are now experiencing new creation, another way to live. Like I said, our, our time here is uh, on vacation essentially over. We need to cross back. And, and as my uh, time is, as, a, as a tour uh, guide comes to an end, and before I transform into a grumpy old man right before your eyes, I just want to simply say that in my own research, this has been so surprising to find this and yet incredibly convicting. For myself, I am, I am uh, not looking down at you, although I am literally looking down at you right now, but I'm not looking down at you. There's a lot of ways in which I wish my, somebody like my father could, could come and think about some of the riches that we learned, because he lived this. And I spent a lot of my life trying to be somebody, trying to get enough status, trying to get recognition, and so I am not looking down at you. We live in a world, I think, that may not be as foreign um, the modern person uh, may not see that world as, in, uh, as incredibly foreign as we might think. There's a scholar named Alan Noble at OBU, and he says the only way for us in a modern world to discover and to create our own identity is essentially uh, to make a statement that I am my own. In order to make this statement that I am my own, we still need some sort of external validation. We need some audience to gaze at us approvingly. And so, in modern life, we can never really stop expressing ourselves, can we? He makes the remark, a teen listens to music that reflects and expresses her personality to other people, even though the lyrics are explicitly about rejecting 
the judgment and opinions of other people. Or he says, a middle-aged man wears a shirt that says, only God can judge me, but clearly he wants you to judge him based on that shirt. And then this is what he says, you can go to the quote, and the terrifying thing is that everyone else in society is doing the exact same thing. Everyone is on their own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression so that at times, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so that everyone else will know that they exist and who they are. And so, to get that positive gaze, that affirmation from our audience, we have to dance more and better. Things have to be sleeker and shinier. Generally, in our attention economy, this means saying and doing more and more outrageous things so that we can stake our place. There is never contentment. Everyone needs to act out their hero status in some story, a chance to cast ourselves as a star in a drama. So average high school athletes need to cut a highlight reel to make it look like they're NFL players. The Lost Boys that John made reference to a few weeks ago, they dress up like Navy SEALs. Everyone learning four chords now has to produce a music video and friends chatting about life at a coffee shop, that's now a podcast. I told you I was going to trans, trans, uh, transform into a grumpy old man. Thanks to likes and retweets, we get immediate and constant feedback from our audience of reputation. It's exhausting, it's terrifying, it's exhilarating all at the same time. But it's never enough. We need more applause, and so we perform and we dance. And as you guys know, this is deeply unhealthy, even deadly stuff. Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist at NYU Stern School of Business, has basically made the case, especially when we're talking about teenage girls, and I'm a girl, I'm a girl dad, that girls at 10 to 14 who are on social media constantly having, feeling the need to perform, this is causing trouble and harm on a massive scale. Depression, self-harm, and suicide are through the roof in a way that for height only corresponds to the ways in which we continue to engage in this game. And if it doesn't lead to harm, it certainly leads to a really troubling change in perspective and goals in life. Lego survey showed that in the UK and the US, children would rather aspire today. Their main goal is to be a YouTuber or a vlogger rather than an astronaut, a policeman, or a fireman. The number one future occupation that children have today in America is a YouTuber. Sam Wass, who is a psychologist commenting on this, says all these jobs are fundamentally inward looking. How do I make my own life interesting to other people? The jobs that are getting less popular are, it's not about me, it's about helping other people. And I think it's just important for us to step back and to say, all of this is the opposite of the love of God in Christ. Some of us maybe just need to hear again today and claim again today, as Paul says in Romans 8, you don't owe the flesh anything. For us, that game is over. That's not for us. We are a community of the crucified. And the only thing that matters, as Paul said, is faith expressing itself through love. The highest good here is how low we can stoop to serve. 
And so as we kind of come to the end of our journey and we've come back, are, are there any souvenirs that we can sort of bring from our journey across into southern Turkey and back? Again, these aren't hard and fast rules, and a lot of you should be the ones that are teaching me, but these are just a couple of things that, that I've had to work on as I've been convicted in my own journey. First is this. We have to, like, intentionally change our audience of reputation. The main audience that we are, in fact, acting in front of is God and other believers who have quit the attention economy. Here we realize that all the social capital we bring to the table means ultimately nothing. It doesn't mean anything to God, and it doesn't mean anything to our brothers and sisters who have also quit the game. I think in this um, changing of our audience, we need to recalibrate our criteria for greatness. What really is great? Is it standing in front of people? Is it having a bunch of letters behind our name? Or is it servant love? I think in some ways, one of the great ways to practice this that I've been challenged over the past is to love others and do good for them and then tell no one. Don't tell anybody, even the person that you've helped. It kills that aspect of us that wants to play the game and it lives out the very drama of the cross. Another thing that I'm really trying to cultivate in my life is to celebrate and recognize servants, not celebrities. I think primarily of a guy that I loved back in high school or middle school named Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins was, by all, um, by all counts, a, a Christian star. He made great music that I still listen to all the time, but Rich although he was incredibly rich, would never actually even know how much money he made. He had a number of people that looked and took care of his finances, and he would only take a certain amount of money a year, whatever an average person made in Wichita, Kansas for that year. Everything else he gave away. Nobody knew of it. Any sort of um, celebrity um, uh, meal or awards dinner, he would show up and he would serve the meal um, rather than uh, sit there and be served. I think as we begin to think about looking towards people as families and as communities that are servants rather than celebrities, then all of a sudden our journey, uh, or maybe over time, our journey can be about love rather than self-actualization. I have a friend named Kei Hiramatsu. He is uh, Japanese and from Japan. He moved to the United States to pursue the very same degree that I have. He came here, learned English, and while he learned English, he learned Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, French, and German in an English classroom. As he neared the end of the PhD program that I was in, we talked. And he talked about why he did it. He said, you know, you in America, you pursue goals and vocations and calling based on what we love to do or what we feel alive when we're doing. He said, but that doesn't work in Japan, in a Buddhist culture. Instead, for Christians in Japan, what we have to do is we have to look at our people and say, what's missing in our community and how can I fill that hole? That's why I came over here and learned all of that. Kay very easily could have my job here and live in luxury. Instead, he has moved back to, to Japan he works for next to nothing, running schools, teaching in seminaries. Nobody knows who he is. He is a servant. He is, in fact, somebody that's not pursuing his own self-discovery, but servant love. Um, just a couple more things. I oftentimes think about uh, my own 
sort of situation? How can we be great at what we do? How is it that we can be responsible and uh, finish, uh, do the job that we're supposed to and provide for our families, and yet... We're going to have to cut communion. Not turn it up to an 11 all the time. Is there any way that we can so, be great uh, at what we do and to be responsible at our crafts together. and all of this sort of stuff? But do so we, always, we'll do we always have to turn on the smoke machine? I think we do this really well with our kids, right? We play sports with our kids, and yet when I'm out in the front yard playing soccer with my boys, I'm not acting like messy, just totally dominating. I let them win. I create space for them. And so there's something about being great at something, but, but maybe in the, our performance culture, maybe we don't always have to turn it up to 11. Maybe that makes space for other people to come and to join. And finally, when I think of love and when I think about this journey that we've been on, man, we really need to reclaim the greatness of our story. To be a believer and to believe in God's love for us and Christ's death for us. And to think of that as a drama that we get to live out again and again and again, that we as a community get to dream it up all over again is the greatest story that we could live in. Well, I, I cannot tell who am I unless I can talk about the story of which my life story is a part. And this is our story. And as we le- think back about those voices right? Those voices that somehow say we're not loving enough or some that say we just need to abandon love altogether. I think this morning as we come to the table, it literally, we live out the drama of the cross and the Eucharist that we're about to celebrate. We are a part of the greatest story possible. And here, like our ancient brothers and sisters who took an old, tired uh, word like love that people competed with, they stole it and they repopulated it with cross-shaped love. I think this is still the challenge for us today as we come back. We need to once again claim that love is something that we know in Christ and is something that we get to live out with one another and before the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word that you give us. We do not make it. We stand before it and ask that you, by your word, would transform us. Make us more into your people for the world. Fill us with the fruit of the Spirit. Would you grow your love, love that is different from the definitions around us? Would you fill us with cross-shape, other-preferring, Jesus-type love? Would you help us to live out the story of love in surprising and fresh ways before a weary world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.